Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How are you doing today? Great to see you. If you're visiting, my name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we're in a series on emotions. Uh, and so to help us talk about that a little bit, I've got a question for you. Uh, do you know the difference statistically between how many men are colorblind and women are colorblind? Super surprising. One in 12 men are colorblind. One in 200 Women are colorblind. Or maybe not surprising if you're married and in a relationship, maybe like the, the girl just turns to the guy and she's like, that's why you think you can wear those pants with that shirt and you're 100% wrong. Like, finally, I have an answer for my life. I'm just like, there is a difference in the way that men and women see color. Generally, men see things a little bit differently. And so to, to quiz you, I would ask you this. What color is this. Because you might say blue, or you might say it's cerulean. But I can predict with like fair certainty that, that if you're a guy, you didn't say cerulean because your range of colors is probably not that broad. There's gonna be some guy that comes and complains to me like, no, no, I definitely knew it was cerulean. Let me just say this, I'm gonna generalize massively today and I get to do that because I'm stood here and you're not. There is blue and then there is cerulean. Guys see things differently. We have a, not, not less of a range of colors, necessarily, but more, but less details around colors. So there's these helpful diagrams to talk through, like all the different colors that apparently women can see uh, and all the ones that men can see. So if you can't read those from where you are, did you know there was a color called spindrift? Spindrift is apparently a color. I thought that was what you did when you were driving in the snow and you try and drift around a corner and your car goes into a spin or something like that. Or there's, there's, there's like the difference between clover and fern and moss and all of these different things. Men and women see colors differently. It's not that the range is less, the details are less. Here's a question though. What if men do emotions like they do colors? What if there's a sense that when, when we have some of those conversations in relationships, why is the guy in my life not able to express himself emotionally? Why is it just, oh, I'm happy. Oh, I'm sad. I'm just like there somewhere in that range. Maybe men do emotions in the same way that they do colors. It's not that the range is less. It's just that the details are less. When we started this series on emotions a few weeks ago, we gave you all an emotion wheel that starts with some of those core emotions, starts with some of those things like happy uh, and sad and disgust and anger and fear and surprise. But then it makes its way out into these emotions that maybe most guys in the room would say, I have never felt or think I would ever feel that particular emotion, worthlessness, insignificant, inadequate, alienated. Dis there, there are so many of them. And I probably couldn't narrow down to like, no, that's the exact thing I'm feeling. Where I can live is happy, sad, disgust, surprise, some of those core emotions. Maybe we just see emotions just a little bit differently. But for some of you, especially if you're new to this series, the question might be, why are we talking about emotions at all? Is that something that we need to have conversations about in church? Like, is that something that God has a value on? Well, what I would say is, is this. Feelings, emotions bring new data that is missing when only thoughts are trusted. When you just live in your head, just live on information, I would suggest you're not living into the wholeness of a human being. And, and as a community, I would say that can be true as well. I've been with you guys at South here for about a year and a half and I love this community, but what I would say is we tend by nature to be something of a, a hands and a head community. What do I mean by that? We like new information. We deal with that very well. We process things on a sort of fairly deep level. And then also we like to go and do things. We like to be practically involved in our community. But we would, I might say we, we would struggle a little bit when it comes to processing feelings and the heart and those emotions. We're maybe a little bit more hesitant in some of those areas. It is good to feel that you are loved by the God of the universe. It is good to be in this community and say, I had an experience where I just knew and just 
process. Yes, in my heart, I feel that God loves me and values me. There is nothing wrong with those kind of experiences. And when, as we as a community become heart as well as hands and head, we are more whole. God is shaping us in good ways. From the earliest part of the Bible, what we see is emotion is a huge part of it. From the early Hebrew tradition on, the story of the first family, Adam and Eve, for those of you that are new to this Bible thing, was understood as fundamentally about emotions and emotional suffering. In this place called Eden, human beings had emotion. And then there is this event called the fall. And in that process, suddenly emotions are not just good or pleasant, perhaps is a better word, they suddenly become more difficult to handle. We were made with emotion, but the fall introduces emotional suffering. So last week we had Kevin come teach us on the idea of dealing with shame. And I just loved hearing him process just his experience dealing with that. And so many of you, I know you came up to me afterwards and said it was just a revelation for you. One person said, I finally have a word to sort of help me unpack my whole life, which just, how incredible is that? And because and I love music, I think often in music terms, and, and in the 90s, this band called Nine Inch Nails did this song called Hurt. Uh, and, and it's all about just that processing of just emotional pain and suicidal ideation. And then Johnny Cash comes along and sings it at 85, and it just gives it a completely different tone. Suddenly you're hearing a guy in his 80s unpacking that. Now Kevin's here, so I'm not suggesting for a second he's in his 80s, but he is a little bit older than me. And what I got to hear was just the experience of someone just having processed this over a whole life, and it was just life-giving to hear that. Shame is something that comes out of Eden and something that can lead us to so many other emotions. It's something that fundamentally we have to learn to be able to deal with. And today we get to move on to this emotion, anger. An emotion that it seems is often described as something that men struggle with and not women. And yet, as I got to do some research, as I got to ask some questions around this, the reality is that that's not true at all. What we see is that men and women both struggle with anger, but we deal with it differently. It often outworks itself differently. And one of the things that was intriguing to me was as I listened to different female podcasters talk about their struggle with anger, one of the things they said over and over again was, I see it like this, men are allowed to show anger. It almost has a value in society. And when I show anger, it's not valued. It's not allowed. It's not safe. There is no permission for women to show anger. So we're going to spend just the morning unpacking that. Where does anger come from? What is the deal with that? And to do that, we're going to look at this old story, Genesis chapter 4. If you have a text, many of you will be familiar with the story of Cain and Abel. So here we go, verse 1 of chapter 4. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. So from the beginning, the names are really interesting. Cain has this connotation to it of created. And so some of Eve's language in the light of the fall is this. With God's help, admittedly, I have created if you remember the Genesis 3 story, it had that language of they will become like God when they eat this fruit. And so still in Eve's language, we heard, we hear that language. I am now the creator of someone. Look what I have done. And then Abel's name is heartbreaking for its foreshadowing. Abel, as it would be pronounced, simply means breath or breeze. Like it's there in a moment and it's gone. It's the language of vapor. It doesn't last. It's a, a voice into the whole of humanity because most of us know right where Abel's story is going to go. Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. Some would suggest that somewhere the Bible is saying that being nomadic, keeping sheep and moving them around is better than being a tender of crops. But Adam and Eve were tenders of crops. I don't see any reason to read that into it. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Somewhere in their wiring, these two men know that their relationship with God has to be crafted and curated with a gift. 
They know instinctively that that's something they must do. There's no written command at the moment that says they must do this, but somewhere internally, something says to them, no, bring something. And they take what they are doing in this world and bring the first part of that to God. But what we see is this, that is now work. It's no, no longer like Eden where they were simply tending something naturally. There is now a process they have to go through. The, Eden, the post-Eden world, it's different. Th this world is now against them. Eden was for them. That place was for them. It was on their side. Now the world is in opposition to them. And in Eden, they were for each other. They were supportive of each other. They worked in this perfect unity now that has changed in the post-Eden world, the world is against them and they are now against each other. Ridden into this early part of the human story is this opposition. And don't we see that today? Don't we see that sense of competition from our earliest moments? Don't we see that sense of having to earn our place, whether that's as a nation, whether that's as, as an individual? Broadly speaking, we get that sense of competition. There is this old Arabic proverb that goes something like this. Me against my brothers, me and my brothers against my cousins, me and my cousins against the world. There is unity at times, but it's always crafted at its heartbeat in opposition to each other. We are constantly warring to find some space. They bring their offerings and we're told this, the Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favour. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. There's no reason given for Abel's offering being accepted and Cain's not at this point. Anyway, in the New Testament, it gets unpacked a little bit more, but the best we could say is it seems like Cain brings just what he has, what's left. And maybe Abel brings, it says, the fat portions, the good stuff. He brings the best of what he has. Maybe the language we might use in church is the first fruits. And so Cain, when he's rejected, becomes angry and his face is downcast. The first motion in the story is anger. Except, well, at least that's what the English version of the Bible you have in front of you will say. Because the reality is it's a little bit more complicated than that. The word that we're reading there in Hebrew is this word hurrah. It means to burn with anger, yes, at times, but depending on the context it's in, it's also distress. It's also sadness. It's also depression. Cain's emotion might be anger right now, but it also could be sadness. And in the actual fact, in the ancient Near East, that idea of having a, a face that was downcast spoke of sadness and dis depression. The first emotion in the story could be anger. It, it could be sadness. Doesn't that tap back into our emotions conversation? The first human male to express emotion in the Bible doesn't really know how he's feeling doesn't know how to articulate exactly what is going on. There is sadness, yes. There is depression, yes. And, and then we know where it goes. It turns to anger, turns to rage. Eugene Peterson in the message simply says this, Cain lost his temper and went into a sulk. Cain is described like a five-year-old child. It's like that, that tantrum. He throws himself on the ground. Somebody else was treated or rewarded well, and he doesn't like it. So he sulks. And God, in his goodness, will unpack that with Cain and for Cain. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry again, or sad, or depressed? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. You must rule over it. God's language for Cain is, Cain, you will always struggle with these things. Your emotions will war against you and they will potentially lead to actions that are bad. You are going to have to master this. You're going to have to deal with this to live well before me. And then the story moves on in this fascinating way because it just so succinctly just trots into the next part of the story. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. The language could be, let's take a walk together. Let's go for an afternoon stroll. We've got nothing to do. Let's just go and just enjoy each other's company. Let's go and see the sights. Let's go into the mountains and have a look and see what, what creation looks like. And then while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. The first death of a person within Scripture is at the hands of another human being. It's not natural. It's not in the normal course of things. The first death is because one human attacked another. 
Somewhere we see written into who we are as people in this fallen world is that we have this tendency towards self-destruction. By nature, we don't make things good. By nature, our fallen nature, we make things worse. We break and we destroy, regardless of the first emotion, whether it's sadness or whether it's anger. Cain's anger is what it is eventually, and it leads, it leads to murder. So it's not surprising, I would guess, that when Jesus comes along and brings his brilliance to these thoughts, he ties murder and anger Together, This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. I was once asked to do a sermon by a lead pastor on, it was the Ten Commandments, and he said, would you do, you shall not murder. And I'm like, what am I supposed to say to people? It's just like point one, don't kill each other. Okay, I'm done. Everyone go home early, grab lunch, get brunch with someone. But Jesus will push us further, right? He won't let it sit at just you shall not murder. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus sees the connection between anger, where it can go, and what it can result in. He sees what is in the human heart, and that in itself is a challenge to us, right? We know our own hearts a lot of the time. I know the revenge fantasies. I know the moments where someone has upset me, and I think about all the ways that I could get back at them. I know where it can go, and Jesus does too. Jesus will also, I think, pick up on this other element of this Cain and Abel story, perhaps maybe the most heartbreaking part of it. Look how Cain unpacks what he has done. The Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? It's not the anger that's the worst part of the story. It's the contempt. The anger, we can kind of understand the, the desire for revenge or the desire at least for, to, to be aggressive to someone who's getting in your way. But what we see with Cain is just this, I don't know. It's not he's dead. It's not he's alive. It's just it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether he's dead or alive right now. It's simply contempt. I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? And Jesus unpacks this tendency in us as well. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, racker is answerable to the court. It's a term of insult, like you idiot, you nerd, you whatever. I don't know, whatever insults we're using today. And anyone who says you fool, this term of contempt, this worthless person, you'll be in danger of the fires of hell. Jesus sees contempt, he sees anger, and he sees murder as all interrelated. And he sees the possibility of the human heart and, and where it can go. And maybe the most heartbreaking part of the story in itself is God's response. Genesis chapter four, verse 10. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. I used to read God here as angry. Now again, I see sadness. I see grief. I see the same voice as we saw in Genesis chapter three, this moment where Adam and Eve are the, for the first time hidden from God. I see the language of God there as just, where are you? You used to live before me and with me and now you're distant. And I see here the, what have you done? How has it ended like this? How have you become this unhuman thing? You were made in my image and this isn't what an image bearer of God does. Do you see your own story here? Because I see mine. I see my tendency towards anger. I, no matter how I am on the surface, I see what it is to be like Cain, the language hurrah that we talked about earlier. What it means at its root, its most primitive language root is this. It is a burning in the chest. It's a somewhere there is a fire in here. It is almost inhuman. It is the language of what it is to, to move from humanity to become, to become almost a dragon, to become the thing that we, we talk about in fairy tales, the thing that has fire within it that, that, can, that can go anywhere, that can attack anyone at any moment. There is an inhumanness to the way that anger is described, to way, the way that Cain's actions are described. The singer-songwriter Paul Simon said this, anger is an addiction. We like it. The brain likes it. And now you've got a country full of addicts and the media and certain politicians are the dealers. So everybody's angry all the time. 
I'm not saying there's nothing to be angry about. What I'm saying is you can't make a calm decision when somebody's got you in a rage. That's really perceptive language from someone who's just supposed to write songs for a living. The, the truth is that anger isn't always bad. Anger, when it's based on injustice, can be a good thing. Where would we be without Martin Luther King's sense of anger and injustice? Where would we be without Gandhi's sense of injustice? Where would we be without the injustice of anyone who has done anything to shape the world in good and new ways? But what we see from them is this. We see action and not reaction. We see a decision to do something in the face of the way that the world looks. We don't just see unsort of conscious rage. And somewhere... Anger has become an addiction, perhaps, for many of us. In Cain's story, anger builds and builds till it leads to murder. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Have you felt that burning in the heart, that sense of rage, that almost uncontrollable sense? I felt it just a couple of weeks ago with this company. Um, now, now uh, let me say this. I, I like to tell people, I, I was an Apple early adopter. I, I was on their team when none of you guys were on their team, you know, back before there were iPhones and stuff. Uh, and so I went to them because they have great customer service. I was like, you really look after your people. And the other day, I, I had to send them an iPad that I'd broken for the third time. And, and so I said, I need a new iPad. I have Apple Care. Could you send me one? They said, absolutely. We'll look after you. We'll send you a new iPad. It will be there tomorrow. And you just send us your old one when you're ready. And, and, and time in the next 10 days and all will be well. A month later, I still have not had an iPad. It's been in Indianapolis for like three weeks. And then it goes back to Apple, goes back to California. And, and so I call them and say, guys, where's my iPad? Like uh, you, you promised me my iPad. And they, the lady on the phone who did not deserve what I did to her uh, said, uh, we're really sorry, you don't have Apple Care." I said, well, I did a month ago when you said that you'd send it to me. And she said, well, I'm ever so sorry. You don't have it now. We can't see any record of you ever having it. Could you give us your Apple Care number? I said, no, I don't have it. I don't know what you're talking about. Just send me my iPad. Uh, I was very much like Cain in that moment. I was a raging, raging, angry child. Uh, and they said, no, we ultimately can't help you. And then I lost it. I went on this big rant about how I'd been involved in Apple before anybody else cared. And I worked with this company and, and we all use Apple. And, and I said, and I remember saying this final like defeated moment. I was like, I could just stop everyone using Apple in our company, but that wouldn't even matter to you. You're the biggest company in the world. And it's just, it's just not fair. Just so angry. Maybe you felt that sense of internal rage. Maybe it's sometimes over the silliest thing. Maybe for some of you, it's Facebook Marketplace. That moment you think you've agreed to buy something from someone and then you get a message that simply says, oh, sorry, we sold it to somebody else. And you're like, but why? We had a deal. Did they just offer you an extra $50 for the car or something? And that was worth it for you to break a social contract that we made? It's that rage of like that helplessness. It's the moment some of you had when you drove here this morning. Who are my road rage people in the house? I know there's some of you. There's some honesty. I love it. More finger pointing than honesty. Um, I love some of you are very happy to call out your, your, your spouse or your friend or whoever uh, on road rage. But road rage is a thing, right? We, we have this experience of trying to get somewhere and somebody else, either through incompetence or malevolence, is in our way. They are stopping our progress. And we suddenly find ourselves to become inhuman monsters. We become the dragon in those moments. This person is going to get it from me. I'm so mad. But road rage in itself, as much as it's funny to talk about, it is actually a perfect illustration of what is at the core of anger. Road rage offers a window into the common cause of our anger because the common cause of our anger, friends, is this. Somebody has stopped me getting where I want to be. Somebody has stopped me getting where I want to be. In road rage, that's the physical sense of I'm late for work, probably because it's somebody else's fault. So I'm trying to drive faster than I should. And this person is driving slow and they're in the way. I'm now maybe stressed because I know that I have so much to do and I'm so busy or I'm maybe worried about how I'll be perceived because I've been late or something like that. Practically, physically in road rage, somebody else is physically in our way. But almost all anger starts from the fact that whether it's physical or mental, or psychological, somebody else is in our way. Somebody else's actions are affecting us being who we want to be or where we want to be. 
Maybe it's simply that your friend, roommate, husband, wife, whoever hasn't done the dishes and now you have to do them and now you can't be all the things that you wanted to be. Maybe it's with your kids or grandkids. They act a certain way. How will you be perceived when your kids are seen to be acting like that? So much of our anger is built out of that sense of somebody is in my way. I was listening to a podcast as I was prepping this sermon and someone said, most anger comes from these four things. Stress, injustice, failure, or embarrassment. I am stressed because there is so much to do. And so I'm angry at my kids who need my time. There is an injustice. Something is wrong in the world. Someone has bought my Facebook marketplace thing. Apple won't play by the rules of human nature. There's this sense of injustice that's there. There's failure. I tried to do something and I wasn't successful. And maybe that's just tied to embarrassment. How are you perceiving me? right now. It all links back to what Kevin talked about last week. It links back to shame. Am I, am I enough? Somebody gets in our way and we are angry. And, and some of you might sit there and say, do you know what? I can see now ways that anger has affected all of these different things. It's affected my friendships, my marriages, parenting, businesses, careers. There is a route to anger. We struggle with it. We become these different kinds of creatures. There is a burning heart or a burning within us that can just unleash itself on almost anyone around us. So what do we do with that? If that's our problem, like what do we do? What do I do with my anger? Maybe you'd sit here and say, you know what? Jesus may talk about anger being bad. The Bible may talk about anger being a problem, but I disagree. Like maybe the best thing is just to let it go, just to vent it. That's what dragons do, right? They have the fire inside them, they let it go. Or, well, they're not real, but it seems like that might be something we can do. Do we let anger erupt? There are some people that would say maybe, yes, there are these things called rage rooms where you get to go and destroy something, although people that go don't tend to feel much better. They often feel more angry. I picked up this picture from the awesome movie Office Space in the 90s. This is the guys who are just so angry with this printer that is ruining their lives, destroying the printer. And this was the best picture I could find. And I loved that it had 2016 on the printer down there. And it was like, ha, ah, you guys are gonna love 2020 if you thought 2016 was bad. It's like another level now. I'd love to go back to 2016. Life was so simple in 2016. 2020, 2021, maybe not so much. But there is this idea of just let it erupt. Find this vent point for your anger. In Cain's story, we get to see where anger goes in terms of what happens to his brother. But I don't know if we get to see the full reality of what happens if we just let our anger vent. God almost cuts off the story. It's really interesting. Let's just look at the end of that, Genesis chapter four. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. That language could be, can I be forgiven? Is that even possible? Today you are driving me from the land. I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And most importantly at the bottom, and whoever finds me will kill me. Cain knows how vengeance works. He has done something and somewhere there could be vengeance for what he has done. And here God cuts that story short, but the Lord said to him, not so, anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The story ends there. The violence stops there. The anger stops there. The vengeance stops there. But in other places in the scripture, in the writings, it doesn't stop there. This is Judges chapter 15, a story about a guy called Samson, known for his long hair. He was very strong because of it. I tried to grow my hair to become really strong. It didn't work, although I did cut it all off once. And no lie, someone at work said this to me, you look worse. Um, you, you, you had this presence when you walked into a room and it's like diminished. So there is a lesson. Once you have long hair, you should never cut it. And Samson eventually learns this lesson as well. We're told at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. 
That may seem strange to us, but often in the early part of the marriage, right after the ceremony, husbands and wives looked, lived separately. And then the, the father of the man that was married would build an addition often to his house so that they could live there. We're told here, he said, I'm going to my wife's room, but her father would not let him go in. So we start here with a marriage. Okay, remember that we start with a marriage. Where does the story go? I was so sure you hated her, he said, that I gave her to your companion. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. We begin with a marriage and we progress to a story where the father of the bride gives the bride away to one of the groom's friends. How will Samson take this? Samson, a man known for his anger, known for his rage. Samson said, this time, I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So he went out and caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs. He then fastened, Peter would hate this part of the Bible. He then fastened a torch to every pair of tails, even worse, lit the torches and let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. He burned up the shocks and the standing grain together with the vineyards and the olives gro olive groves. We started with a wedding. We then had a moment where the bride is given to someone else. Now the crops are on fire and people are going to go hungry. How does the story progress? When the Philistines asked who did this, they were told Samson, the Timnite's son-in-law, because his wife was given to his companion. So the Philistines have somebody now to blame. Remember, we started with a wedding. We ended up with a different kind of wedding. And now we've got crops on fire. Where will this go? When the Philistines asked who did this, they were told Samson, the Timonite's son-in-law, because his wife was given to his companion. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. We started with a wedding. We had a different wedding. We had crops on fire. And now we have people on fire. Samson said to them, since you've acted like this, I swear that I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. Then he went down and stayed in the cave in the rock of Etam. It's like he went on vacation. I went down to stay in the cave in the rock. That's just the place that I go after I've killed many people, apparently, in Samson's mind. The story is baffling. Where does it go from here? The Philistines went up and camped in Judah. So now the Philistines are marshalling an army and are camped in Judah, spreading out near Lahi. The people of Judah asked, why have you come to fight against us? We have come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Etam and said to Samson, don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. Seems like we've heard that language somewhere before. It's becoming like the refrain of the passage. They said to him, we have come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Samson said, swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Agreed, they answered. We will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and led him up from the rock. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came towards him shouting, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. You can buy anything on the internet these days, it seems. This is the jawbone. Actually, it's a buffalo jawbone. There'll be someone who's like, that's not a donkey jawbone. Couldn't find a donkey, okay? It smells bad. And this donkey's teeth, were, this buffalo's teeth were definitely in need of dental care. Um, very, very British teeth, you might say. Um, <laughs> we started with a wedding. We had a different wedding, an unplanned wedding. Then the crops were on fire. Then the people were on fire. Then more people died. And now a thousand people are dead by a guy swinging a jawbone. This is where anger goes when left unchecked. This is where revenge goes when left unchecked. And look how the story ends. 
Then Samson said, with a donkey's jawbone, I made donkeys of them. With the donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. Samson has killed a thousand men with a jawbone and he's writing verse. He's writing poetry, making fun of the dead men. And then he drops the jawbone. It's like, there it is. That's the end of the story. Except for those of you that have read it, you know it isn't even the end of the story. This story won't end till Samson is stood in a foreign temple with thousands of Philistines and in one last moment of strength puts his hand on two columns and brings the whole structure down on them and on himself. This story won't end until everybody is dead. This is where anger goes when it's left unchecked. This is what anger, where anger goes when we live in our inhumanness. And, and remember again, I'm not talking about the sense of injustice that leads you to positive action. I'm simply talking about the sense of the burning heart within me that just unleashes itself on those around me. This is where it goes when we're left to vent it. This is where it goes when we become Vesuvius, where we simply unleash the anger. But what's the other alternative? Do we just hold it in? Is that what Jesus says when Jesus says to us, don't be angry? Is it simply just stuff it down? And I question that and I doubt that because I've done that and I know it doesn't work. I used to joke with my family that my dad could wash dishes angry. I could watch him at the sink. We didn't have a dishwasher and I could see him knowing that he was supposed to work and I could see that sense of injustice. Somebody else is getting in the way of where I'm supposed to be and now here I am stood at a sink washing dishes and he wouldn't yell and he wouldn't shout but I could see it in all of his body language. I am mad. I am angry that I am having to do this and I know it especially now because now I do it too. Now I become my father. That's how it works, right? You become one of your parents. At least that's the way it seems to work. And so now I can stand at a sink washing dishes feeling somebody else should have done this, not me. And I don't yell and I don't shout, but somewhere there is an internal sense of, ah, oh, this isn't fair. Maybe you've done what I have done. Maybe you've not yelled and not shouted, but you can remember times where you had deep fantasies about what you would do to the person that has gotten in your way, that has harmed you, that has hurt you. I remember once being in an argument with someone about something and driving to Tennessee the next day overnight and all the way there just thinking about the ways that I would, I would deal with this situation if I could thinking about the ways that I was just full of anger, full of rage, not yelling, not shouting, but somewhere just trying to stuff it deep down inside. I know from good conversations that some of you would honestly say anger is a real struggle for me. I struggle with rage. I struggle with yelling. I struggle with the dragon coming from out from within me and, and just venting on whoever is around me. But I know there's others of you, including myself, that struggle with the opposite. We believe because of Jesus' words, the, the, the thing to do is to just shove it deep down inside. Believing that that will mean that it never ends up there. It never ends up with a thousand people dead. And yet what happens so much of the time is this, the fire that could have consumed other people, it feels like it's consuming us inside instead. Like, is this how I'm supposed to be? Is this Jesus best for me? When Jesus says that, no, 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 you're not supposed to be angry. Is this what he had for me? I just wonder if it is. I just wonder if Jesus has something better. I just wonder if his death and resurrection means a different kind of life that we can actually live where it isn't just anger deep and internal, hidden away inside us. And when it isn't anger, just vented on the world around us. I wonder if he has a different kind of humanness for us, a different way to live in what it is to be the image of God. Is there a third way? Is there a third way? And I would suggest that a third way begins here. It begins with honesty. Not necessarily with the person that has hurt us, the person we're mad with, not necessarily with Apple computers, but maybe with God himself. Sigmund Freud, it seems, saw some of this when he said that counseling was a great place to let anger out, but maybe an even better place is with God himself in relationship with him. There are these things in the Bible within the writings called imprecatory psalms. 
if you've never read them, they're some of the most fascinating language that you'll ever come across because they really give that like human sense. You might read them for the first time and say, is this how God feels? And the answer is no, this is how humans feel. This is how humans like you and I often feel. This is Psalm 58, maybe one of the best of them. Break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Lord, tear out the fangs of those lions. Let them vanish like water that flows away when they draw the bow, let their arrows fall short. May they be like a slug that melts away as it moves along, like a stillborn child that never sees the sun. I love that language, like a slug that melts away. Let the sun get so hot for them, it burns them up. God, this is language of what it is to long for vengeance, long for your enemies to be treated as you feel like they should be treated. And maybe a beginning of dealing with anger for us begins with honesty. The writer Walter Brueggemann says this, imprecatory psalms are like what it is for a child who's mad at its sibling to come before the God of the universe as a parent and complain and to ask what they feel like justice is. To say, you need to deal with this. And his question is this, what does a good parent do in that moment? A good parent probably doesn't just say, oh yeah, I'm going to do all the things that you have on your list. In that moment where you come and say, my sibling did this, I remember this one time where I was out playing in the yard with my brother and he just threw an apple at my head and I was like, what is wrong with you? Who does something like that? And I went to my parents with my complaint. I'm like, you've got to fix this guy. You've got to give justice. You need to act here in this moment. And I probably had a long list of all the ways that they would act in, in ways that I thought were appropriate. And a good parent probably doesn't say in that moment, give me your list, I'll make it happen for you. But a good parent doesn't also say, you gotta fix this yourself. Just, just live with it. It doesn't matter. It's not important. Your feelings, your emotions, they don't matter to me. Just get over it. Put some Vaseline on it or whatever you do. Put some like, you know, clean it up somehow. Just get on with life. A good parent does neither of those things. But a good parent does bring us through this conversation of, I totally understand why you are so mad. Can you trust me to deal with this? I can handle the justice. You have to let me do it. It seems like for us, those moments of rage, those moments of anger, those moments that are so often justified, somebody has hurt us perhaps very deeply. And in those moments, we come to the God of the universe as a parent and we say, this is what I want you to do. I'm trying not to act on it myself. I'm trying not to live my own justice. I'm coming to you for that justice. The God of the universe walks us through this journey of hearing us in our moment of pain, but perhaps as well, leading us into a next step maybe he leads us into humility. Maybe he leads us into an honest statement of, maybe I don't know the full picture. Maybe I don't have all of the information. There's a fascinating character in the Bible. His name is Absalom. He's a son of the famous King David who wrote many of the Psalms. And Absalom was someone who was convinced he knew exactly what justice looked like. If only someone would appoint me judge in the land, then everyone with a grievance or dispute could come to me and I would give him justice. For Absalom, he knows what justice looks like and he knows how to act on it. But humility demands that we say this, I don't know if I do know what justice is. And I may not have the answer. And there may be ways that this person who hurt me has been broken and hurt themselves. There may be ways that what has been done to them was also horrific. This is a different picture than just what was done to me, I will now do to others. This requires that we say, maybe I don't have the information I need to make this judgment. And then maybe the last part is this. Maybe when you're ready, you finish by handing over the jawbone. We see what happens when anger leads to its ultimate thing. A man is set free miraculously and the first thing he does in that moment is he picks up the nearest object and at the end of it, a thousand people are dead. Somewhere it seems our conversation with God leads us through these different stages. It can begin with honesty. I want this. This is what I want you to do. Make it fair. 
but it moves us to humility, to saying, maybe I don't know. And maybe I'm not the best person to decide. And maybe you are. And then maybe in that moment, before people start dying, before the dragon unleashes its flames, before everything goes nuclear, maybe we take the jawbone before it's covered with the blood of other human beings made in the image of God, and we hand it over. And hopefully you get at this point that the jawbone is just metaphorical. I don't believe you actually have jawbones hidden away, ready to assault other human beings. But I do know from my own experience that maybe you have other weapons. I told you about sitting there in that car, driving eight hours overnight, thinking through all the words I would use, all the words that I could weaponize to make sure that the other person knew just how wrong they are. We may not pick up jawbones, but we can weaponize words and say, I'm going to use this because I know that this hurts the most. We can weaponize old stories and situations. Oh, I may have done this this time, but remember back 10 years ago when we were on vacation together, you did this thing and it was awful. And I still remember. There are things that we can choose to weaponize and humility, the honesty and humility leads us to say in the end, God, I'm turning over the jawbone. I'm turning over the weapon that I know that I can use in my anger to hurt the person that hurt me. I'm turning over the right to say, I'm only doing to them what they did to me. And I'm gonna trust you to bring justice. Let's take a moment to pray. Bob is gonna come and play for us. And I'm just gonna lead us through just a short practice based around that idea. I'm gonna invite you to, um, for a moment to, to contemplate the idea of anger. Maybe for you, it's deeply connected to that word shame we used last week. Maybe you have moments where you're stressed. You haven't been treated fairly. You failed or are embarrassed. And you sense that burning in your heart, the thing that makes you feel almost inhuman. Maybe for you, there's been moments where you've vented it on those around you. Maybe sometimes the people that didn't deserve it. And right now, the, the God of the universe comes and walks alongside you and says, I know. But that isn't the pathway for you. There is a new way to be human. Maybe for you, you've taken anger and you've just stuffed it down so deep inside that you, you like, in some ways, like, you don't even know how to feel anymore. You don't even know what you're feeling. There's a numbness, a, a crust that has appeared around the edge and it can almost make it feel impossible to enter God's presence because it's just so much going on in there. The fire may not have consumed other people, but it's definitely consuming you. In this moment, what we get to do is we get to come to the God of the universe who loves us and say, God, I'm just so mad. Look what has been done to me. It's not fair. Somebody else is getting in my way and I want them moved out of the way. I want you to deal with them. I want you to make them like the slugs that dry up in the heat. I want you to break the teeth in their mouths. Deal with this. maybe in that moment the God of the universe just nudges us towards humility maybe he whispers to us child you don't see as completely as you think you do doesn't minimize our pain doesn't say that it doesn't matter but maybe just reminds us that there are, other, there are other stories that we are not familiar with. And then finally, there is a moment, a conversation in which he says to us, would you drop the weapon? 
would you let it go? I know it's hard to surrender. I know it's hard to give. We sang these dangerous words at the start of the service. We sang about giving everything to Jesus. And then sometimes He comes along and He tries to take something that we've held very dearly, our right to vengeance, our right to do to them what they did to us. It takes the weapon that is so delicious to use and that is the risk of anger. It is in the moment delicious. And it may be that what was done to you was truly unfair and unjust. But that isn't really his question. His question is, will you trust me with this? Will you hand over the weapon? Will you let the vengeance die here? Will you let the story end here? Will you give me the jawbone before it's covered with the blood of another child made in God's image? This conversation may not end here for you. You may go away to other good conversations with good counselors, with wise friends, with pastors. You may honestly say, I have internalized this for so many years now. It feels like it takes more than just a sermon or a teaching to bring me through this process. And that's all good. That's fine. But you can begin, every one of us can begin by being honest. God, this is what I want. Jesus, thank you for your new way to be human. Thank that you that in asking so much of us, you don't ask and just say, now it's on you. Through your death and resurrection, you come alongside us. You live within us and you empower us to do hard things. So for my friends, my brothers and sisters, for whatever they need from you, in this moment, would you bring it? give it and grant it. In those moments where we're tempted this week to become less than human, would you remind us that we are made in your image? And continue to shape us in your likeness. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.